Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Well, I don't know where to have you open up your Bible, so just open your Bible up to somewhere. I'm just kidding, but we're going to eventually get to Luke chapter 24, if you've got your Bible and you want to open that up, I'm going to read some other verses first. Uh, Last week, we we looked at Luke 24, and uh, it was Easter, of course, and I just want to continue with um, that same passage of Scripture Uh, Because there were some things that the Lord had put on my heart out of that passage of scripture that didn't fit in with last week. And uh, the title of today's message comes from the question that Jesus asked the disciples when he appeared to them uh, in the, the room where they were hiding. And he asked them, have you anything here to eat? And so that is the title of today's message also. And I want to talk about our preparation for what Jesus is doing in the world that we live in today. Uh, I want to begin in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time, but I would really encourage you to spend some time this week and read Matthew chapter 25, the the entire chapter. Um, In uh, Matthew chapter 25, we have uh, a couple of parables. We have the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents and all of these things that Jesus is telling in this discourse beginning with Matthew chapter 24. He's talking to his disciples about his second coming. And he's talking to them before he's even gone to the cross about his coming again. And in this parable of the ten virgins, I want to start with that. Uh, Without reading it, I think most of you probably are somewhat familiar with this parable anyway. Uh, there, There are ten uh, bridesmaids, ten virgins, and their job is to be prepared to greet the bridegroom when he comes. And five of them, Jesus says, were foolish, and five of them, he says, that they were wise. And the only reason that the wise virgins are called the wise virgins is, virgins is because they have enough oil. They prepared enough oil for their lamps It'd be kind of like we say today that they had enough charge or enough batteries with them because they needed the oil for their lamps for there to be light. And they prepared enough oil to last all night long, okay? And, of course, nobody expected the bridegroom to take so long. And so the, wise, the unwise virgins, the foolish virgins, they were not prepared. They brought enough oil just to last, say, until midnight, and uh, thought for sure the bridegroom was going to fit into their window of time, and Jesus does not fit into our window of time or into our frame of mind, but he requires us to fit into his frame of mind and his time frame, and so they were not prepared. Uh, All of the virgins, all ten of them, it says they all fell asleep. So... That, you know, maybe wasn't the best thing for those wise virgins to do. Maybe they should have stayed awake. But, you know, there's a limit to what a person can can handle and how late they can stay awake. And so they all fall asleep in this this, uh, parable. But the thing that truly uh, uh, makes them uh, foolish is not that they fell asleep, but that they were not prepared when the bridegroom did come. Because they had an alarm that was going to wake them up. Somebody's going to sound a trumpet and say, here comes the bridegroom, and they know that they're going to be woken up. Uh, And the thing that makes the other ones wise is that they had enough prepared. And when the bridegroom was coming, they all ten wake up, and the foolish ones say, give us some of your oil so that we have enough for our lamps. And there's a spiritual principle in this parable that if if we give you what we prepared, then there will not be enough for us. And so they do not give it to them. They say, go buy some if you can find some at this late hour. And they were not prepared when the bridegroom came. I want to challenge you this morning to challenge yourself and realizing just how prepared we are for the coming of our Lord and how prepared we are for the days in which we live. William Shakespeare, anybody remember who that was? 
wrote in uh, Henry V, a uh, very famous line, uh, all things are ready if our minds be so. All things are ready if our minds be so. Our minds need to be prepared. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 and 34, listen to the, what it says. And this is written to Christians. This is written to us. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals or good intentions. Become sober-minded. This word in the Greek means for your mind to be saved, for your mind to be born again. Become sober-minded as you ought to be and stop sinning. There's not a whole lot of counseling or psychological help offered here. Just stop sinning. Get your mind in order. Everything is in the mind. The battle is in the mind. And then he goes on to say, for some have no knowledge of God. Wow, that statement is made to Christians. Some of you have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. You know, we've lost the feeling today of what shame is and how godly and righteous shame can be. And we've done that because there is an unrighteous and an ungodly shame. But we've made ourselves ashamed of being ashamed. We've forgotten what shame is because everything's talked about, everything's on television, everything's before our eyes, and we're not ashamed of things that we ought to be ashamed of. Do you know that God is ashamed? The Bible says that he will not even look upon certain things. Many places in the Bible make that. And so we have this understanding that he's, he's ashamed because that's what it means to be ashamed, that you can't stand to even look at something. You can't stand to have it in your presence, and God is holy. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, do not participate. I'm talking about being ready today and how our minds are not ready. It says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Do you know that the deeds of darkness are unfruitful? They do not bear fruit. They do not bring life. They bring death and destruction. It says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And then listen to this. It says, but instead, even expose them. Bring them into the light. For it is disgraceful, it is shameful, even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. These things are written in the New Testament, and they are for us. In Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to turn over there and look at that real quick. I'll probably look at it quicker than you'll find it, because most of you don't know where Haggai is, but you've got a table of contents if you don't. But it's just a wee bit back there into the Old Testament. And in the prophet Haggai, there's a very interesting scripture in chapter 2. It, it says in, in verse 10, On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, This word comes to him in the time of Darius's reign. This word comes to, them, to him when the children of God are in exile and they're living in Babylon. We live in Babylon today. We live in Babylon today. And they are in Babylon. And here's the word that comes. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it, the other food, become holy? In other words, is holiness contagious? And the priest answered, no. Because in the law, cleanliness is not contagious. Uncleanliness is. And then it says in verse 13, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse, so if you had touched a dead body according to the law, then you were unclean for a period of time. If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. It's the same thing that 1 Corinthians is saying. That bad company spoils good morals. You know, you could have the most, if you've ever been to Napa Valley, there's some expensive wines there. You could have 
find the most expensive wine in Napa Valley, and it would not be something you could afford. Some, some, somebody might be able to afford it, I don't know. But even if you could afford it, you'd think, well, I'm not going to spend that much money on wine. But you could, you could tap a barrel of the most expensive wine in Napa Valley today. And you could take that, and you could visit um, one of these uh, 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 allies or somebody else's little outhouses. You know what I'm talking about? And they're pretty clean, right? Well, better, better go out to the canyon and go to the rest stop and go in the bathroom there, okay? You know what I'm talking about, the outhouse type thing. And you could, you could pour a gallon of that wine into that toilet, right? And everything that's below that toilet would not be made clean, would it? It would not be made clean. And yet you could take a tiny cupful, or even less, of what's in that toilet and pour it into that barrel of wine, and the entire barrel would be turned to what's in that toilet, and it would be absolutely ruined. That's what this is saying. We can say that you are my daily bread, this is my daily bread. You know, we sing this song, I love this song. But if we're carrying the daily bread of the Lord in the fold of our garment, and we're embracing the lies of this world at the same time, then that bread does not make the lies of this world clean. And we are made unclean by the uncleanness that's in this world. Are we prepared? Are we wise virgins or are we foolish virgins? Now go with me over to Luke 24. We're going to come back to what I'm talking about here, but Luke 24. In this story that we read last week, verse 1, it says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. I want you to pay attention to this word. They had prepared spices. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now I'm going to read verse 11. Verse 11 says, But these words appeared to them, to the disciples, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. I want to draw your attention in this story that we read last week to the preparation of the women versus the lack of preparation of the disciples. Now, you might say, well, the women weren't prepared because all they did is prepare spices. They thought for sure Jesus was still dead. Well, yeah, I think that they thought Jesus was still dead, but it's obvious from the story that their minds were ready to receive a resurrected Christ if that could actually be. You understand? They were prepared because the angels said to them, why do you seek the living one? Albeit amongst the dead, but they are actually seeking the living one. They say, why do you seek the living one? They were prepared to receive the gospel that's being preached to them by two men dressed in dazzling clothing. It's interesting that it says two men in Luke's account because Luke is writing the eyewitness account of these people. And these women did not know for sure that these are angels. We, we know that from the other Gospels, but here it says two men dressed in dazzling clothing. They don't know for sure that these are angels. They know something's going on. They don't have a complete understanding of everything. And the only proof they have is that the stone is rolled away. And that's a lot of proof but not quite enough to believe that somebody raised from the dead after being crucified. One thing they knew for certain, because they watched Jesus die, and nobody survives a crucifixion. Nobody survives a crucifixion. And they knew for sure that he is dead. Well, now the stone is rolled away, and these angels preach the gospel to them, and they believe it. But when they go to tell the disciples, the people you would think should have been the most prepared, it's because Jesus told them they would raise from the dead. And they remember the words of Jesus. It says that the disciples thought it sounded like utter 
nonsense. Now go on later in the story over to verse 41. Over in verse 41, Jesus comes into their presence in that room. He says, peace be unto you. They're scared. They think they're seeing a ghost. Jesus says that, you know, touch me. I'm flesh and bone. And a ghost, a spirit, does not have flesh and bone. It is I. I have risen from the dead. And uh, then we read in verse 41, it says, While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Now one reason for this being included in the gospel story is this is a proof that he's not a ghost because ghosts don't eat broiled fish either. That he's not a spirit and that he is in human flesh. And there's a lot of interesting things you could talk about in, related, in relationship to this. It appears that even in our resurrected bodies and throughout all eternity, we're going to eat food, for example, because Jesus is eating food right in front of them. And it's not the only time. In John, we know he comes back later and he's frying fish up on the, on the seashore for them and they're eating breakfast together. So we, we, there's a lot of things you could talk about that, that are here, but I, I want to draw your attention to something that I, I bet you've probably never really thought of before, and we'll get to it in just a second. But let me read on from, from verse 44. Verse 44 says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. Their minds were not prepared. And because the mind is closed, the heart does not burn within them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see, this is the Great Commission. It's just how it's written in Luke. You are witnesses. You will be my witness. You shall receive power, it says in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 1. After that, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit has fallen, has come down upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is talking to them about their mission. He's talking about, to them about where they're going next. And what they're doing right now is hiding out in this room. Remember, they are hiding in this room. The doors are locked. The windows are closed. And they have every reason to hide in this room. Because Jesus was arrested and he was crucified. And they know that the authorities are coming for them next. You would be hiding out. I would be hiding out in that room also together with them. And Jesus comes to them. And he says in this, this, to them, you know, you're not going to be hiding out in this room forever. I'm sending you out into the entire world. But you're not ready yet. Your minds are closed. They need to be opened. You don't have the power operating in your lives. You need to wait until the power comes from on high. When the power falls from on high and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, your lives are going to change and you won't be afraid and you won't need to hide in this room anymore because the truth is there is no place to hide except in the middle of the will of God. The safest place on earth is to boldly do the will of God and to take a stand. You cannot hide behind the lies. You cannot hide behind the compromise. And they're in a place of compromise. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you here, guys. We've got a mission. We've got a journey that we're on. So go back up here to verse 41. When we look at the whole thing in this context, what Jesus' question takes on a, a, a different light. And I want you to see this here. He says, have you anything here to eat? Now, in the Greek, the Greek word that's translated to eat, which is a verb, right? It's an infinitive. To eat. In the Greek, it's actually an adjective. And it's the only time in the Bible that this adjective is used is right here. And what it literally says is, do you have or have you brought with you anything edible? And there's a little bit of a difference there. 
Because the question is really this. How prepared are you guys? I see you're holed up in this room here. I see you're hiding out here. Do you even, did you even bring anything edible with you? They, oh yeah, Jesus. And they get, we got broiled fish. We've got fried fish. Yeah, that's edible. But how long is that going to last? Think about it. They don't have refrigerators. When they caught fish, they did one of two things to that fish. Either they fried it for eating right now, they broiled it for eating right now, maybe up until tomorrow morning. I don't know. You know I mean, it's not really a very good climate there for keeping broiled fish for very long. If you broil it, it's because you're going to eat it now. Or they salted the fish, and then it would last for a long time. They have broiled fish when they should have salted fish, is what Jesus is drawing their attention to the fact that they are absolutely unprepared for what is happening on the earth today. They thought everything was over. They thought it was done. They thought probably this is our last meal. Jesus knows that you're going to go into all the world. And you need the power from on high. Your minds are so closed that you went camping and didn't bring anything other than a hamburger that was already cooked. And you think you're going to be able to survive here until the power comes from on high? They don't know how long it's going to be. It's going to be 40 days until Pentecost. Approximately 40 more days until Pentecost. But they don't know that. Jesus just says, stay in Jerusalem until that power comes from on high. But something miraculous happens here. They give that broiled fish to Jesus and their minds are opened like that and things begin to change. It's in this time when we read the other Gospels that Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. There are two outpourings of the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and there still are today. The first one is when a person is born again. Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they are what we call, or what Jesus called it that, that's why we call it that. In, in John, he said to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. They are regenerated. They become new people. They're saved. But then Jesus says, now you've received the Holy Spirit, now wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does, because there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has not come upon them yet. There's one thing for the Holy Spirit to live on the inside, and another thing for the Holy Spirit to be poured out as an anointing onto your life so that you have the power to be the witness for Jesus. And when this comes, the gifts of the Spirit, in particular, the first gift, speaking with other tongues is what is evident in the book of Acts. And you can argue with me if that should be evident in our lives today or not. If you want to argue, just argue all you want. But I want what the Bible plan gives you. I want what the Bible shows you. I want the Holy Spirit to be operating in my life. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to come. And they have to wait. They have to be prepared. Are we prepared today for what's going on in our world. Remember, you can't make something unclean by adding a little bit of cleanliness to it. Look with me over at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preaching. I'm not going to read his whole sermon here, but in verse 9, he's, he's talking about the coming of the of the Son of Man. He's talking about the Lamb of God coming. He's calling the people to repentance. And in verse 9, it says, Indeed, the axe, this is in his sermon that he's preaching, his prophetic sermon, he says, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? How shall we be saved? What shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics, or you know, two outer clothings, two coats we would say usually, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Then look at verse 15. 
It says, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If you're sitting here today and you don't know what winnowing forks are and what chaff is, and all, it's because our agriculture agriculture works a little bit different today the principles are all the same look it up online you can figure it out but what i want you to understand is this picture of jesus how this how john preaches jesus because jesus hasn't changed right i mean we say he's the same yesterday today and forever well he hasn't changed and john says that his axe is already at the root of the trees we don't want to see a jesus who burns the chaff up but he burns the chaff up so that he can bring the wheat into the barn. He's not burning the chaff up because it's so fun to burn up the chaff. He's not chopping down trees because he just loves chopping down trees. But if you're going to clear land and you're going to prepare a harvest, then trees have to be chopped down. And trees in Scripture are nations. So big things have to come down. And he says that his axe is already at the root of the trees. When he spoke this, his axe was at the root of Jerusalem. And within 70 years, Jerusalem will fall. When he spoke this, his axe was at the root of Rome. And it's going to take a little bit longer, but Rome is going to fall. His axe is at the root of the trees. And he's winnowing. He's cleansing his threshing floor. He's gathering the wheat and separating it from the chaff. So let's bring that home to ourselves. He needs to separate the wheat from the chaff on the threshing floor of our minds. So good. On a, of our minds. And he's going to burn up the chaff. But we have to be willing to allow him to do that. We have to put his word in the first place. John said, when they said, what should we do? He said, well, if you've got a tunic and you've got two of them, then share with the one who doesn't have anything. And I know immediately thinking, oh, that's how I'm going to be saved. Or, you know, that, or, or this is some Old Testament thing that he's preaching, that we've got to go out and do good deeds and, and feed the poor and help people. And, and that's good, feed the poor and helping people. That's all good and that's all part of the gospel. That, but that's not going to save you, is it? No, it's not going to save you. What he's talking about is something very spiritual here. That if you have a spiritual covering Share with the one who does not have a spiritual covering. If you have food, then share that food with the person who doesn't have any food. But as we're going to look at some other scriptures today, that food is a spiritual food. We sang about it this morning. It's the living word spoken to us. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus answered Satan, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is our food. God's word is our food. So if we don't have God's word, then we don't have anything to share with other people. And we're not fulfilling, we're not prepared for the mission that lies ahead of us. What should we do? Do we have anything edible at all? And again, before you say, oh yeah, I do, because I go to church and I listen to the Bible, and, and, and that's edible, that's something I can share with people, but don't forget, if you take this the word of God, and you just mix a little bit of the lie in there with it, you've ruined it. It's not edible anymore, right? The word is edible, not do you have something to eat. But do you have anything edible here? Do you have anything that I would want, Jesus is saying? Do you have anything that you can share with people that will bring life to them and deliver them? We stop preaching a gospel that sounds like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't even like the word repent. But the word repent is just such a beautiful word. I mean, all it means is just turn around and come back to Jesus. It just means come home to Jesus. But you've got to leave something behind if you're going to repent. Right? You've got to change your mind and come back to Jesus. And it requires repentance. And repentance, at least in my Christian life, 
is a daily work. It doesn't just end because I repented one time 30 years ago or something like that. So you know the story of the five loaves and the two fishes, right? That's in Matthew chapter 14. And they, at the, the same kind of thing happened there with that story, right? And uh, uh, they, they tell Jesus, you know, we've got to send these crowds away uh, because we don't have anything to feed them with and there aren't any food trucks here or anything like that and they're going to have to go over into town to get their food. And Jesus says to them, why do you want to send them away? And he's, he says something really bold. He says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples react just like you would react. What are you talking about? We ain't got anything. So again, he challenges them on their preparation. And they said, well, we do have, and we know from the other Gospels that a boy had it there with him. Uh, his, the boy's little lunch, right? Anybody remember this story from Sunday school? I love this story in Sunday school. Because it always encouraged me to know that the little bit I have, if I just give it to Jesus, that he's going to multiply that. So they said, we've got five loaves and we've got two, again, bro, you know, maybe they were salted, it doesn't say, but two fish. And so Jesus says, bring them to me. It's the same thing he's saying here in Luke chapter 24. Give this to me. It's not, this is really important. It's not the amount of knowledge that we have. It's really the purity of that knowledge and giving it to Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I want you to have faith like a grown-up prophet. He said, I want you to have faith like a little child who doesn't have a lot of knowledge, but the purity of the knowledge that he has, that he's giving that into Jesus' hands, that he's giving it over to Jesus. This is what we call faith. And faith is the work of love. And faith is food. Faith is what causes us to grow when we hear God's word and we believe God's word. Now in Matthew chapter 25, there's another um, uh, parable. And it's a parable that I'm also not going to read, but, but you read it. It's a parable of the talents. And in this parable, Jesus, again, talking about preparation. He, being prepared for his coming. Being prepared for what he's doing. He says that there, there was a man, and he was a rich man, and he went away on a journey. And when he left to go on this journey, he called three of his servants to him. And to the first slave, he gave five talents. And remember, that's like five years wages or, or more. This is a, a lot of money, okay? He gives him five talents. And to the second slave, he gives him two talents. And to the third slave, he gives one talent. So you see that the amount, the, the quantity of the talent isn't what's important in this story. The amount of fish isn't important. The amount of bread isn't what is important. What's important is the faithfulness to give this over to Jesus completely. Some of the most intelligent people that I've met in life can be some of the stupidest people you could ever know because they don't believe God's word and they don't trust God's word. And you can meet some of the simplest people on this earth that are the wisest of all. They have real wisdom. I just pop into my head my great-grandma, who died when I was 10 years old. I can hear her singing her hymns in the kitchen. You know, every time I think of her, all I have is this picture of holiness. A woman that got married when she was 14 years old. Her first husband died in a cotton gin accident. And then she married my great-grandpa. She was about 16 years old. She didn't never go to school. She came to Oklahoma in a covered wagon. But I'm telling you, that woman knew how to do things most women today don't know how to do anymore. Because they had to do them. And she had vast depths of wisdom on the inside of her because she just loved Jesus with all of her heart. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be more wise if you don't go to school. You can have both. You can be intelligent, you can be filled with wisdom, and you can be filled with knowledge. And that's, that's wonderful. Go to school, learn things, study things, understand what you can understand. But realize that there's a limit to everything that we can know. But there's no limit to faith. There's no limit when we give what we have to Jesus. He can multiply it to feed 5,000 people. 
he can do it and multiply it. So all you have is a little piece of broiled fish, but you're going to survive until the Holy Spirit fills you with power and you're going to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Sometimes our faith, oftentimes our faith is, are, is limited by our abundance. Did not Jesus say this? Did he not say how difficult it is for a rich man to even enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's like a camel that has to go through the eye of a needle. And then the disciples said, then how can anybody be saved? And Jesus said, well, with man it's impossible. But with God it is possible. So it is possible. But it's very difficult because our abundance limits our faith. So, he gives five, he gives two, and he gives one. And you probably know the story. The guy that has five, he's faithful. He invests those five talents, and he makes five more. And when the master comes back, he says, I've got ten. And here it is. He doesn't skim off the top. <laughs> he gives the whole thing to the master. And the master says, wow, you were really faithful. Enter into the glory. You've been faithful in the little things. I'm going to make you a ruler over much. Because that five talents is just a little tiny thing to this rich master, even though it's huge to the slave. And the same thing with the guy that gets two. He takes the two, invests it, and he gets four and gives it the same thing. But the, the parable is really focused on the guy that got one. So the guy that got one, he went and buried it in the ground, right? Every one of us can be this guy. Every one of us has a talent, at least. And if you have nothing in your life, you think, then that just means you've buried your talent. Because you know that you've been given a talent. You've been given a mind. And as they used to say on those commercials on TV, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And our minds are wasted with lies. And it's a terrible thing. We've been given a mind from God that needs to be sober. It needs to be saved. Remember, we read this scripture not packed full of things that, it's, that it's, it's, it's disgraceful to even talk about. Things that are a shame unto God. We need our minds to be saved. We need to focus on our mind and offer it up in faith to the Lord. But this servant, he was wicked. He said, uh, or, or the master says he's wicked. He said, I know you to be a hard man, that you reap where you do not sow and you gather where you do not uh, that you gather where you have not scattered seed. And because I know you're hard, and because I know you're unfair, God, I went and I buried my talent in the ground. And by the way, here it is, take it back. And that's most people's attitude towards God when it comes to the gift of life that God has given them. I'm just going to do what I want to do because God is unfair, he is unjust. Now I know... If we're going to church, we're not going to say these words out loud. God is unfair and God is unjust. But I challenge you to realize this morning that if your talent lays buried in the ground, then what you're saying is, God, you're unfair and you're unjust, and I don't like what you've given me in this life. But if you, yeah, he says he's scared. He says he's scared. But why is he scared? Because <laughs> he's scared because of what God has done for him. Everybody can be afraid. Huh? But it doesn't say that. He says he's scared because he knows God to be unjust. You could be scared of failure. Well, that probably won't fly very well when we get to heaven either, though. <laughs> I was just scared of failure. Well, you failed. So your, your fear came to pass. You failed anyway. You can't fail if you use what God has given you. You can't fail. If you invest what God's given you, then you do not fail. A righteous man can fall seven times, but he always gets back up. So Jesus opens their mind, he enlightens their mind, and he fills their mind with his word. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Let's read these two scriptures. I already talked about this. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 4. He's talking to the devil, by the way. It says in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we see that the word of God is food, right? The word of God is real food. Now, Jesus is actually physically hungry. This is a very real temptation. That he's not succumbed to this temptation because he has the word of God. And the word of God that proceeds out of God's mouth is real food. And then if you look at John chapter 4, John chapter 4, In John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus says to the disciples, you can read the context, when they've gone to buy lunch and they come back with their lunch, he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So again, he's talking about their mission. And he says that you are saying that this is going to happen four months down the road. I'm saying it's right now. Your time frame isn't my time frame. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. So we see that the food that Jesus is looking for in our lives is the word of God, the living word of God, and doing the living word of God. Filling our minds and our hearts with the word of God. Because what we do is a product of what our minds are filled with. We act in accordance with our minds. So there are many lies that are in the world today. Things that are just embraced, even though we plainly know that they're not true. Right? I mean, I grew up, I remember the first time in school that we had a teacher talk to us about evolution and tell us that God did not create the earth. And I remember all, it was the emperor uh, is walking down the street naked with his new clothes on. If you know Anderson's uh, tale. Every kid in class, I mean, I remember that day to this day, I remember the teacher's name. Every kid in that class, I remember what the classroom looked like, and I don't remember very much from elementary school, but I remember it because every kid in the class just began to laugh out loud. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? We know God created the earth. He said, no, you've descended from monkeys. And I literally had never heard that before. I'm probably in fourth grade. I mean, I literally had never heard that, that before. Okay? But today, if you were to stand up in class and say, God created us, they're going to laugh at you. Right? Because we know for a fact that, that Darwinism is true. How, how do, were we there? Did we see that happen? How do we know that for a fact? I mean, there are things that are just on the face of it. They are utter lies. But we embrace them with our mind. And it's compromise. And the longer we embrace it, then the, the, the more we kill our own souls. And we don't have anything to offer to Jesus. We destroy our own lives. You know, everybody in here, knows 100% provable with empirical evidence from all of nature around us and thousands of years of human history that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Amen. And that you cannot change that. Yes, you can do a surgery to mutilate parts of your body. That's not something new. There were eunuchs made back way, way back in Old Testament days. But it was never, never did people think, I was born a man, but I'm actually a woman. Because it's just, it's, it's, I, there's not even any reason to talk about it. It's just not true. 
And I would have never thought I would even get up in a church and talk about that. Because it's a disgraceful thing to even talk about. But our entire nation today is preaching this lie. And we believe it. Well, we don't believe it. Really? <laughs> we don't believe it. I don't believe it. But we begin to slip into this mode where we don't want to, uh, you know, we've we got to deal with a person because he's gay. Really? Because if we believe he was born that way, that God made him that way? If we believe that God, he was born that way, then it's not a sin, is it? And if it's not a sin, then the Bible's a lie. Because it says in the New Testament that it is. Well, it's a, all sin is the same. Okay, okay I'm not going to argue with you about that if you want to, but still, it's a sin. But all sin is not the same because it does not all have the same consequences. And even Jesus referred to levels of punishment. And I don't understand all that. I don't know everything that exists in, in eternity and how it will be. But what I'm talking about is the lie. Everybody knows that a man's a man and a woman's a woman. Everybody knows that. But we embrace those kind of lies. We embrace lies that a person can be born this way or that way when he can't be born this way or that way. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor, the kind of temptations that that person has. He was abused as a child. Okay, really? I don't understand that? I grew up. I was a teenage boy. Every single human being in here understands what sexual temptation is. If you've reached some certain age. And the ones that haven't reached it are over there in the children's class. And you learned early on in life that I cannot do everything I'm tempted to do. Because my life will be destroyed by that. You learned that. Or if you didn't learn it, you've already destroyed your life. Your marriage and everything else. Doesn't, there's no excuse. It's just a lie. Okay? And we embrace a lie. We believe a lie. We repeat a lie. Because that's what you have to say or you're going to get in trouble. But you know it's a lie. So this week, I heard this guy on a podcast... And it uh, doesn't matter who it is, the professor uh, of, uh, he's a professor of Soviet, Russian, Ukrainian, and Cold War history, formerly at Columbia University, he's at a different university now, but it doesn't really matter, what he said was super interesting. So I was listening to this podcast, and uh, they had some interesting guests, including him, so I wanted to, I wanted to hear this podcast. And they were in particular talk, talking about the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. Okay, if you don't know anything about that, you just don't pay attention to news. <laughs> but, and um, so they we're talking about, about that, something that from the very get-go was very obvious who blew it up, okay, because it was blown up by the Biden administration. Now, there's just no doubt about it. Everybody knows that that's the truth. Everybody knows that that's what's happened. You might as well just come out and say we did it, and we're happy we did it, instead of pretending like you didn't do it. But we live in a society where they constantly are telling us lies. Okay? So they were talking about that, and he said something. I was listening to it because I wanted to hear about that, but he said something that was so spiritual. It was just really powerful. Now, and so I went back, I paused it, went back, and, and wrote it down. He said, one thing that always impressed me very much about the dissidents that stood up to the Soviet regime was that they lived in this universe where they always knew that the news was fake news and the authorities were lying. Don't, don't we live in that universe now? <laughs> they knew it. But the trick wasn't to make them believe. It was a power game. The trick was to force them to either repeat the lies or to at least be silent about them. And frankly, we are there now. I'm very sorry... This, I'm continuing to quote this guy. I wouldn't have thought that I would see this, but we are there now. We are being told ridiculous, ridiculous lying narratives about Nord Stream, for example, because that's the topic they're talking about. And we are being told that you either believe this, you positively go along with this, or at least just shut up. And then he says, and what this does psychologically to people, and I think here the dissidents have very important insight. 
it's extremely disruptive because if somebody can force you to either buy into something you know is a lie, to live with the discomfort of dissonance, which means disharmony, all the time. Does anybody know what the discomfort of dissonance is? The discomfort of disharmony? Because you know something's a lie. You know that emperor is stark, buck naked. But everybody's saying he's got clothes on. You know that it's a lie. But you live with this, this discomfort of dissonance all the time, or they will humiliate you into being quite quiet and marginalizing yourself from the public discussion because you can't say anymore that it's a lie. Then, in that case, they have done enormous damage to you. They've really cut you down to size. And I feel these mechanisms are now operating here with us in the West. And this is a frightening sight to behold. It's just amazing. So when he said that, sorry for quoting all these things, but this is important. When he said that, I immediately remembered a quote from a book that I read many, many years ago, when I was 20-something, by Solzhenitsyn. That he wrote in 1973, and it's, it's actually a tract, and it's called uh, As Breathing and Consciousness Return. And I've, I've loved, but the, so he's a dissident, and here's the wisdom from living in that universe that we live in now also. And he wrote this. It is not the authoritarian regime alone which is fearful, but the regime that answers to nothing or no one. The autocrats, you know, the kings of the past, religious ages, under the apparent unlimited authority that they wielded, still sensed accountability to God and to their own conscience. Autocrats in our day are dangerous because it is difficult to find a compelling higher value that they submit to. Now, just think about Washington, D.C. today. Is there a higher power that Washington, D.C. submits to today? I know they take pictures of themselves going to church on Easter or rolling eggs or something, but there is not that higher power anymore. There is not a conscience on the inside, inside the beltway. He goes on to say, our state system is not so fearful because it is not democratic or because, and he's talking about the Soviet Union, or because it is authoritarian and based on physical force. Under such circumstances, people are still able to live without harm to their spiritual existence. They did in the first century in the face of Rome. Then he says, the worldwide historical uniqueness of our current system is to be found in the fact that beyond all physical and economical forms of coercion, they require from us the complete casting off of our soul, the continuous active participation in a notorious and all-encompassing lie. This is the decay of the soul. This is the spiritual enslavement to which no people can give their assent if they desire to be human. When Caesar, having taken what is Caesar's in the same manner and with even greater insistence, requires the relinquishment of what is God's, this then we dare not sacrifice to him. Our freedom in the main is an inner freedom. It is always a part of our will. If we ourselves give it away to be perverted, we have no right to be called human. And no person actively promoting the lie or standing in support of it can ever be justified when he stands before the living, his descendants, his friends, or his children. We have no one to blame but ourselves, and that is why all the anonymous pamphlets, programs, explanations written to expose the lie are not even worth a cent. For we have each fallen into the mud and manure by our own will, and no one's mud can be cleansed by the mud of his neighbor. That's what Solzhenitsyn wrote in 1973 about the Soviet Union, and it's the truth today. Now, if we embrace the lie or we just shut up when we know it's a lie. What did it say that we read back there in Ephesians? Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. If you expose something as a lie, then you've exposed yourself also. Because you might get fired from your job. You might get killed. Anything might happen. But what's worse is when you keep your mouth shut 
or even worse, you begin to repeat the lie because that's the compromise you need to keep your job or whatever it may be, and then you die on the inside. You kill your own soul. And that's what the propaganda, that's what the lies are designed to do. Because a dead people, spiritually, are people that are easily controlled and can be used for anything. Don't make a mistake and think that we do not live in the time of the Antichrist, because we do. John said that the Antichrist is already here, that there are many Antichrists, and the spirit of the Antichrist is, on, is in operation today. I believe that Jesus is asking us a very simple question today, and it all really comes down to this. Do you even have anything edible? Is there some food that you have with you that you will be able to take and survive this journey because I have a whole lot left for you to do? I did not form Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship or establish this church just so you could just sit here in this little hole and, and just wait for something to happen. People are just sitting and waiting for something to happen. Jerry and I were talking about that this morning in, in, in prayer, just waiting for my prayers to get answered and not doing anything for those prayers to get answered. But we can't do anything without the power of God. And we've got to stop embracing the lies of this world. Well, I mean, what, what if God brings to, to, to you somebody who's just really messed up with drugs and, and they need Jesus? You know, are you going to be able to save them by telling them, it's okay, you were just born a drug addict, and, and it's probably your parents' fault, and, and everything's going to be okay in your life? You know, no, you know that you're not going to be able to help. They have to realize that this is destroying their lives. And, 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 they, and at some point, they have to repent. They have to say no to that. I don't want to go down that road anymore. And why, why is it any different then with this whole transgender thing that is just taking over our entire country today. What, how will we even, I, because I just know everybody said, well, we've got to be able to minister to these people. Well, what ministry do we have for them if we embrace their lie? No, you, you're not a woman. You were born a man, and that's all there is to it. You were born a woman. There's only two genders. Come on, people. There are, listen to me. There are only two genders. <laughs> there, there are only two genders. There is nothing else. So that whole long LGB, whatever, whatever it ends up, it's all a lie. It's a lie. And we have to know that that's a lie. It's a lie that God did not create you. It's a lie that God is dead. But everything begins with that. We believe in Darwinism. We believe that we are God. And so I then think I can just be whatever I want to be. I can't just be a cat just because I suddenly have this idea that I'm a cat. And that sounds curious and funny, but it's, it's everywhere, people. It's everywhere. I'm not participating in I mean... Look at me. I'm telling you, I've done a DNA test. I'm one and a half percent Nigerian. At least that's what the thing said. But what, do you think I'm going to say, I'm Afro-American? I'm not. <laughs> it, it, why, why do we always want to identify, maybe not we, but our whole society is filled with this today. And we have to stop the lie in our church. We have to stop the lie in our minds. And we have to have a mind that's ready. Because everything's ready if our mind is ready. But I, I, I just tell you today that we are being led down a road where I promise you, if we keep going that way, we're not ready. We're the foolish virgins then. We won't make it through the last days. Some people have convinced themselves that the Bible teaches them that you're not going to uh, ever go through persecution. You're not going to ever go through trouble. It's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, there's a thousand lies out there. But they're always exactly the same. The devil never has anything new. It always comes down to this. I'm God, and I can do whatever I want to do. But the truth is, I'm not God. <laughs> 
and he's going to do whatever he wants to do, and we need to side with him. Okay, let's stand together, and we have another song here at the end. Father, I just pray, Lord, that somehow... We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.